Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. It's Thanksgiving week, and we should tell you right off the bat, we're going to have special programming later this week. Uh, Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, we're going to have our special Things We're Politically Thankful For episode of the Three Martini Lunch. And then on Friday, our 2022 edition of our Black Friday gifts for political figures. So you definitely don't want to miss those. Uh, Jim, as we head into our good, bad, and crazy martinis for today. Normally, you know, when good friends and, and, and you know, ex-college teammates are about to clash that week, they kind of go dark. They don't, they don't talk for that one week. We can't really do that. But uh, let me just point out that while things didn't go your way yesterday, you have something to play for on Sunday. <laughs> so uh, if, if you're worried about your offensive line, uh, the good news for, uh, for you is that there's not much of a defensive line coming up against you on Sunday. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, but Greg, let's not forget this is the chance for Justin Fields to demonstrate to the Jets that they should have drafted him over Zach Wilson in the you know draft of two years ago. Uh, a scenario that I think is exceptionally likely to pass, no matter what the final score is on Sunday. <laughs> All right, Jim, on to our official good martini today, and you're going to have a lot of folks out there, especially on the right, saying, "Yeah." We knew about this over two years ago. But nonetheless, there's a CBS News report out from Catherine Herridge, who a lot of folks will remember from Fox News. She's now the chief investigative correspondent over at CBS News. Took, uh, I guess, a copy of the Hunter Biden laptop hard drive to independent computer forensic experts. And uh, as others have concluded, uh, these folks also concluding that what was on the laptop is indeed what was really on the laptop. Here's a bit of her report. Lancherman and his son, Sean, both digital forensic experts, recovered images of credit cards, a driver's license, social security number. Just the sheer volume of what we're dealing with, it would be difficult, uh, if not impossible, to fabricate. And explained how files built up over years. It accumulated over time, which is consistent with normal, everyday use of a computer. There's some reporting about folders being added. We have read these um, articles. We don't see that. So I believe that that's because we have a more pristine copy. So CBS might be late to the game here, Jim, but the important thing is that they're stating this in a pretty uh, conventional mainstream platform at a time when the House Republicans are about to make this one of the centerpieces of their investigations now that they have control of the gavel starting in January. So uh, that timing, I think, is significant. Now, I'm sure we'll get mainstream media talking about Republicans pouncing or overreaching or whatever, and we don't know what exactly is on the laptop yet. But to at least start with the premise that what they're looking into here is the stuff that was really on Hunter Biden's laptop is pretty significant. Yeah, there are three big consequences of this. The first is um, the New York Post should be given an apology, not just by Twitter, but by everybody else who contended this story was a hoax. Uh, most notably, those 50 national security officials and other folks who said, this has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation without actually bothering to check if it actually was Russian disinformation. It turns out that some their, their definition of having all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation actually was had very little to do with what was Russian disinformation. This was real. Hunter Biden has been a very troubled guy for a very long time, and everything that was on that laptop 
checks out forensically. Um, so the next thing is, is that everything, you can still find the occasional lefty commentator who will talk about the hoax Biden, you know, Hunter Biden laptop or the discredited claims or something like that. Once something gets out there, certain people kind of do not update their knowledge of the circumstances. And you can still find people talking about this like it's a crazy conspiracy theory when, in fact, everything in that initial report checks out. Thirdly, this laptop is where we get things like, you know, 10% for the big guy. And it's not just, look, you know, should uh, Hunter Biden be prosecuted for filling out false information on his application for a gun license? Yes. Would it be nice if his drug use was treated the same as all the other people who are in jail for criminal possession of uh, controlled substances? Yes, that would be nice too. But these are the ones that are most consequential to American governance. This idea that all kinds of shady foreign characters believe that they could purchase friendship with the vice president at that time and eventually the president of the United States by either you know giving luxur- you know gifts like giant diamonds to Hunter Biden, going into business deals with him, and um, most notably also now the purchasing of the artwork because he decided one day he was going to become a painter and people decided oh I'd, I'd happily pay six figures for this guy who's never done any painting before all of this smells like influence peddling all of this smells like somebody who believed that they could get an in with the biden administration by um you know basically effectively buying a friendship with hunter biden and believing that that would somehow get them into biden's good you know joe president biden's good graces President Biden insists he's never spoken to his son about any of his uh, business dealings. That doesn't pass the smell test, and it is worthy of more serious investigation. Yeah, and we'll see where the uh, committee goes from it here. I would offer one bit of advice to the uh, Oversight Committee and the Judiciary Committee as they look into this. Ask a lot of short pointed questions. Mm. Grandstanding in these committee hearings is not going to get you anywhere, and it's probably going to turn the American people against you. Get answers and do it in a way that shows that you're actually trying to get the truth and not trying to score political points. It's 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 a, it's a tough balancing act, but trust me, if you get to the truth, the political points will probably take care of themselves. All right, on to our wonderful sponsor for today, and that is Nutrafol. And the good news is, Jim, is you don't have to choose between better hair growth and your health these days. In fact, there's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness. Get ahead of that thinning hair with Nutrafol's whole body approach to hair growth. No drugs and no compromises. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth thickness, and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol's hair growth nutraceuticals go beyond genetics to multi-target the root causes of thinning hair. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three months and six months. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support the three martini lunch by going to Nutrafol.com slash men and entering the promo code martini to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is Nutrafol's best offer anywhere and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, you get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com slash men spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men promo code martini. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And, you know, we're used to getting uh, surprise political news here and there. But business news doesn't usually break in the middle of the night on the weekend, especially for a major corporation. Uh, But it did for Disney. Uh, Bob Chapek, the CEO, is officially out, effective immediately. 
And Bob Iger is back. Now, if you looked at Twitter last night, which is probably not a great idea to get instant reaction late at night on a weekend to a breaking news story, uh, a lot of people saying, ah, they got too woke and now they got to bring back Bob Iger. And as you point out today, Jim, if you've been paying attention to Bob Iger over the past many, many years at Disney, you're not getting less woke with Bob Iger back at the helm here. So uh, just how big of a deal is this? I think it's a pretty significant deal. And and as you said, the, the instant reaction from a lot of folks who, I guess, hadn't really been paying close attention to the management of Disney over the last couple of years. Uh, Bob Chapek, who is the CEO who got tossed out on his keister last night, after having his contract renewed until 2024, back in June, uh, back in June, the, the board of directors issued this statement saying, this is the right man at the right time, well, apparently, or the right leader at the right time. Apparently not. Chapek, I think you can point to him being a less partisan and less political figure. I don't know if the guy is conservative. I just can point to various you know, statements he said in interviews and the fact that he initially didn't want to take a uh, corporate you know, uh, position on the parental rights and education bill, a.k.a. you know, the don't say gay bill. Um, his first instinct was not to get involved, and he didn't want to see the company to issue statements. And it was the former CEO, Bob Iger, who had been at Disney for a very long time, overseen a you know era of rapid expansion, the purchase of Marvel, the purchase of Star Wars, the expansion into China, all that kind of stuff. Iger had become a very outspoken CEO, certainly the most outspoken uh, chief executive in the, in the history of Disney in terms of modern politics, fighting with Trump supporting DACA, supporting gun control, all of that. And so Chapek was seen as sort of a, a, I don't want to say centrist, but just a guy who didn't want to get dragged into all of these hot button issues. He wanted to get back to the basics of, you know, creating entertainment, creating successful entertainment that would be profitable for Disney. Again, I'm not saying the guy was a hero. I'm just saying that he seemed less woke. And, you know, why did he get kicked to the curb? I don't think politics was, certainly wasn't the only reason. And it may not have been the primary reason, but it's hard to suspect that it wasn't a contributing factor to it all. So it's not been as profitable at Disney as they wanted it to be. Again, this does seem like a very big turnaround. One of the things that jumped out at me when I was reading the coverage this morning, uh, you know, lots of listeners probably are subscribers to Disney+. Plus. This is the streaming service they created. This is the one that's got Baby Yoda and all the Marvel series and all that stuff. Well, it launched three years ago, and it's lost more than $8 billion dollars. Now, what's really kind of eye-popping is that they've added 12 million in the last quarter. They're up to 164.2 million subscribers. So you think, oh, it's pretty successful. You run the numbers on how much you know they should be making. You're looking at something in the neighborhood of 1.3 billion per month to about 1.8 billion because they're going to raise rates next month. If you didn't know that, sorry to be the, the bearer of bad news. So you look at the other, you know, they're making 1.3 billion a month, could be going up to 1.8 billion, and yet somehow. They lost nearly one and a half billion over the last quarter. And I look at that, I'm like, God, are they filming Star Wars in space? How is this turning out to be so expensive? But they're creating a lot of content, and I guess the board of directors and other Disney investors are starting to get nervous that Disney Plus may never actually turn a profit the way they expected. So you look at that, okay, there's your financial reason to say, okay, Chapek, you've you've had two years. Thanks for your service. We're going back to the guy who was a great success. But the sense that traffic was not as political, I, you know, obviously, you know, for uh, during the don't say gay, aka parental rights and education bill, there was this internal dissent in Disney. There were employees who were complaining, Disney is turning its back on gay and lesbian employees. I wonder if the board of directors and or investors looked at Iger and said, he keeps our progressive woke employees happy. 
No one is going to ever sell, accuse him of selling out to the right. We may justifiably accuse him of selling out to China, but as we all know, woke progressives don't really care about that. And I think this is, you know, it looks like Chopik wanted to steer the company in a more apolitical direction, a less overtly political direction. And he's now been tossed out and Iger is back and Iger's the guy who kind of steered Disney back in this direction in the first place. So I think for those of us on the right, this is a little bit of a setback. I think this is a little frustration. We like to believe, get woke, go broke. I, I have this feeling Disney's looked at the guy who was less woke, decided he wasn't making enough money. And is going back to the original woke guy. Now we'll see how this shakes out for Disney. But I think if you're wanting more overtly political content from Disney, you're probably feeling better this morning. And thus we should be a little more frustrated. Yeah, yeah, not good. I'm not sure how long he'll stay there. Uh, CNN just mentioned that he was on a podcast with one of their folks uh, earlier this year. And the host, I think it was Kara Swisher, had mentioned, uh, there's some rumors that uh, you might be headed back to Disney. He's like, oh, no, I'm not going back. That's water under the bridge. That's an old life. I'm never doing that again. So just like in politics, Jim, if you're denying it like that, it's there's probably some truth to it. Oh, man. I have total faith in my successor. <laughs> Last thing I want to do is come back and push him out of the air. You know, right. somewhere Conan O'Brien is saying, "I know how you feel." <laughs> yes. Or every head coach whose owner, when they're yeah. you know three and three and nine, is like, "Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, he's doing a great job." All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim, and this is more crazy about the timing, but it also brings up, uh, I think, a larger discussion, as you mentioned in our pre-taping meeting today. Uh, we talked about last week how President Trump has already announced his 2024 bid, uh, and he's not the only one making very strong hints in that direction. There was a meeting of the Republican Jewish Coalition, I think it was in Las Vegas, uh, over the weekend, and a number of prominent uh, people on the right addressed the convention, one of whom was former South Carolina governor and former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley. Uh, as you might expect, one of the issues that came up uh, at a, a meeting like this is the Biden administration's desire to resurrect the Iran deal. And here's how Nikki Haley responded to that. And if Biden succeeds in getting back in the Iran deal, I will make you a promise. I've said it before. The next president will shred it on her first day in office. About as subtle as a train wreck there, Jim. Looks like Nikki Haley is very serious about uh, being a candidate for 2024. Uh, she certainly stood out, I think, as uh, one of the Trump administration figures who left with their reputation perhaps quite a bit stronger than when she first came in. By all accounts, she did a great job up at the U.N. Uh, some folks who don't like her see her as Jeb 2.0. I'm not sure I see that direct comparison. But as you pointed out in our notes today, uh, the question is how crowded this field is going to get and how many, how much room there is for you know more than a couple uh, of candidates with a real shot at this nomination? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that Donald Trump ended up with the nomination in 2016 is that even though when you added up all the votes, actually more people voted for non-Trump options than Trump options, those non-Trump votes were split, you know, roughly 16 ways. And in addition to splitting that vote, there was kind of this, you know this phenomenon of every candidate tended to stay in at least one primary longer than they should have that uh you know bush rubio each one of them they did you know really spectacularly poorly and still remained in there ensuring that the vote would be continued to be split that way uh more ways now look I, i've been covering republican presidential primaries for a long while now 
I'm not saying my judgment is perfect or even, you know, uh, super duper terrific in terms of knowing which candidate is going to rise and which candidate is going to flop. But let's face it, you very rarely start from zero or one percent and then take off to become the Republican nominee. Usually you have to have a certain amount of name recognition built up. And if most Republicans have not heard of you, I kind of feel like saying to you, you probably should go and go out and get more accomplishments. You should go out and do things so that Republicans know who you are and have some reason to have faith in you as the next Republican presidential nominee before you decide, hey, I'm throwing my hat into the ring. Now, Nikki Haley, I think very highly of. I think she'd be a fine president. If she were the nominee, I'd happily vote for her. I can imagine a scenario in which I vote for her in the primary. But she's starting from very low level of support. She barely shows up as an asterisk in these polls. Now, if she announces, could it go up a bit? Yeah, it could. If you see her on a debate stage, could she wow people? It's conceivable. I, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily want to be in the position of saying to you know lesser known and long shot candidates, you have no chance to get out of here. On the other hand, I've seen a lot of folks run campaigns that were basically book tours. I've seen a lot of folks run campaigns where everybody could tell they everybody except the candidate could tell they had no chance. Perhaps the most vivid example of this was in 2016. Uh, former Virginia Governor Jim Gilmore, who I think is a terrific guy, uh, but who chose to run for president, was one of those candidates who was an asterisk and, you know, often not getting any supporters in some of these polls. He competes in the Iowa caucuses and he gets 11. I don't mean 11 percent. I don't mean he won 11 pre precincts. I mean, he won 11 votes statewide. That's a really embarrassing performance for just about anybody. And yet... My colleague Charlie Cook says he remembers seeing Jim Gilmore doing an interview in New Hampshire in which he was pledging, I am going to win the New Hampshire Republican primary. Days after getting 11 total <laughs> votes in the entire Iowa caucus. That's mental disease. They should be checking you for a concussion at that point. People who care about Jim Gilmore should have intervened and said, Jim, it's time for you to sit down. It's time for you to quit this. It's not going to happen. Please come back to reality, touch grass. And he just did not, you know, like there's just too many cases of this. There are too many of these campaigns that are vanity exercises and that kind of just clog up the ballot from serious options. And that's one of the reasons Trump won last time. Now, we've got more than a year before the first ballots are cast. In fact, we haven't even decided what the Republican presidential primary schedule is going to be. We all kind of assume that it's going to begin with Iowa and New Hampshire and then move on to Nevada and South Carolina like it usually does. But there's no guarantee that it's going to work out that way. That still has to be decided. So we've got a lot of time. So if Nikki Haley wants to run, let her go out there. Let her make her case. Let her give her speeches. And we'll see what happens. But I think as it gets closer to crunch time, as it gets closer to those first contests, whether it's in Iowa, New Hampshire or somewhere else, if you're 5% or less, I'm not saying you absolutely have to get out, but I think there's a strong argument that, look, most Republicans know who these people are. There's a chunk of voters who are absolutely dedicated to Donald Trump. It looks like there's a chunk of voters that at this moment are absolutely dedicated to Ron DeSantis. And there's really not that much many other you know free agents out there looking to get signed. Things can change. But at this point, if this is the dynamic come the end of 2023, then the likes of Nikki Haley, Larry Hogan, conceivably even former Vice President Mike Pence, um, Mike Pompeo, all of these guys, it's going to be, you know, if you're not at, if you're not above 5%, and arguably if you're not above 10%, it's not going to happen for you. 
Please stop wasting everybody's time. Accept that the electorate prefers somebody else and move on to and move on to other things with your life. We'll see how things shake out here. I don't want to say to anybody you don't have any right to be up on that stage other than maybe Jim Gilmore. <laughs> Jim, I noticed you didn't mention uh, the, the whirling dervish of Chris Christie or Asa Hutchinson who are making some rumblings about running in 2024. I'm guessing they, they are included in that previous statement. <laughs> They are. And, you know, Hutchinson, again, the fact that I forgot about him is a good example of the <laughs> impact he's had on. Now, you know, now some of these governors can say, hey, I'm, I've got a great record and the national media hasn't paid attention. Here's why I should be president. And you want to make that case fine. The other thing I'm going to observe about Chris Christie, if you listen to Chris Christie assess anybody else in the Republican field, Chris Christie can tell you why they're flawed, why DeSantis isn't charisma- charismatic enough, why this candidate has this flaw, this candidate would never do well here, blah, 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 blah. The end contention is that, well, the only other person who's qualified to take on Trump is Chris Christie, (laughs) the guy who endorsed Trump at a very key moment in the 2016 presidential primary, probably one of the uh, 10 to 15 people most (laughs) who who saved Trump when he needed it during a challenging moment in that primary. Um, And Chris Christie hasn't been in office since, what, 2017? He's, He's just kind of been around. He's, you know, and DeSantis and guys like that will say, hey, look, I was fighting over uh, COVID-19 policy when you were sitting at the ABC News studios for the last couple of years. Where you been, man? So I don't see the country class. There are a lot of people who look in the mirror and see a president looking back. But if you can't convince a lot of fellow party members that, then maybe it's time to find something else to do with your life. Yeah, Christie's been an odd situation here. Of course, he ran against Trump uh, initially in 2016. Then he got out and endorsed him, and then he was very critical of Trump. And then for oh, he was he was good. He was on the short list for VP. Uh, then he didn't mm-hmm. get it. And then when after Trump won, and then he didn't end up with anything significant in the administration. He got more negative about Trump. And then he was back somehow to coach him on debate performance the second time around, which was obviously not great advice in that first debate. Uh, and now he's negative again. So uh, it's the consistency, I think, of Chris Christie that we all appreciate the most. So, uh, Jim, hard to say. But anyway, uh, more people edging in and we're not even to the Georgia runoff yet. But uh, I guess once uh, Trump opened the door, it's not surprising that a few more people are going to try to stick their foot in before it shuts again. So. In any event, have a great day, and I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Also, remember to get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Go out and buy Jim's brand new book, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini lunch. Dr. Aaron Cariotti joins me to discuss how government is using the COVID pandemic to advance a biomedical security state that will strangle our freedoms. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter show, we'll discuss how frighteningly quickly the public gave up liberty for a false sense of safety and what threats to freedom will come as a result of that. Follow the Sarah Carter show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.